Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. But how does his iconic prayer serve as a model in our own prayer life? Find out today as Pastor Scott continues our series on the Lord's Prayer. The scripture reading this week is Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. Please turn to Ephesians 6 in your Bible or follow along the sermon notes handout. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Isla. What a, what a rich service. Child dedications, missionary presentations, wonderful music to worship God. I, should, I feel like I should just maybe uh, say the benediction now and send everybody home. Sorry to disappoint you. We still got a bit more work to do this morning. We are coming to the end of our series on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, this is the prayer... Typically, that is known as the Lord's Prayer, but a prayer that we, or a series that we have entitled, The Prayer That Embraces the World. Now, this may come as a shock to you, um, but every once in a while, only once in a while, uh, preachers can tend to exaggerate. Now, I know that's a shock, right? Um, I mean, after all, look at this title, right? The Prayer that embraces the world, right? How much more exaggeration can we get? Sometimes I think that, uh, you know, maybe we should assign our, um, our friends in the balcony, you know, like they do at kind of ball games, where um, anytime a preacher says something like, the most important thing for you, right? Everybody cheers, and then we put another mark on the, you know, hang another mark from the balcony, or the only thing you need to know, or, you know, something like that. But, uh, you know, maybe not, 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 not this time. We'll start next, next week then, okay? So don't get any ideas. But, so he, here's what I'm hoping you've understood so far. That uh, calling this prayer, the prayer that embraces the world, isn't the result of uh, preacher overspeak. But it's actually the result of the content of the prayer itself. Right? I mean, let, let's, let's go back and look a little bit. Our Father... Our Father. Jesus doesn't provide any kind of um, modification. It's this. Anyone who wants to address God can address him as our Father. We are in this together. Everyone can address God as Father as we respond to him, as we submit to him. But just to remind us, then the next line goes, the one who is in the heavens, right? There is this declaration here that this line makes that there is God, there is our father, and then there's everything else. 
God stands in sovereign relation to the all of reality. Our father stands in sovereign relation to all of reality. Let your name be set apart. The, the, the prayer goes on to say, our father is uniquely glorious among everything that exists. He alone is worthy to have his name set apart. That is to be made distinct from everything else that is going on in the world. Everything else that not only is going on, but that exists. Let your kingdom come. Our father is destined to reveal his absolute rule over every other individual or national body that attempts to reign in whatever way whether democratic, dictatorial, Republican, socialist, and everything in between, God alone, one day his kingdom will be finally revealed and he alone will rule. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will, will, God's will, God's intention, God's desire is irresistible. What God intends to do, he will do. What God intends to come to pass will come to pass in all spheres of life. Give us this day our daily bread. He is the originator and sustainer of life. No matter how it seems, we're not the ones pulling the strings. He is. He is responsible for all that is needed for life. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Nothing can stand in the way of God's desire, the, father, uh, the desire of our father to have a relationship with his beloved creation, with his beloved humanity. There is nothing that in and of itself transcends the power of God, the power of God's love. None of us can claim that, claim that we've done something that God cannot forgive. His capacity to forgive overpowers our ability to sin. We are then without excuse to in turn express that forgiveness to everyone else in our lives. We'll get to the final line shortly. But after that review, the prayer that embraces the world kind of sounds a little underwhelming now, doesn't it? Jesus' prayer insists that our Father is absolutely sovereign and that we are in absolute need of his work. Jesus' prayer entails that our Father alone is the source of all we need to flourish and will one day perfect the work of redemption that he began. One day our Father will welcome all his family home and nothing can stand in his way. Amen? But as wonderfully crucial and important and critical uh, in terms of the content of the prayer is, don't forget the messenger. Don't forget who is the teacher of the prayer, right? Don't forget the source. Don't forget where it comes from. This is the teaching prayer of Jesus. Jesus. I love this explanation from Tom Wright. He says, when Jesus gave his disciples this prayer, he was giving them a part of his own breath, his own life, his own prayer. The prayer is actually a distillation of his own sense of vocation, his own understanding of his father's purposes. This is what, Jesus, what mattered to Jesus, that God's will is done, that God's kingdom come, that, God, that, that his father's name is glorified, 
that we recognize and all that who follow recognize that he is the one who provides. He is the one who sustains us in everything that he has forgiven us. And so we then in turn should forgive others. And all of this is at the heart of who Jesus is and his purpose, his sense of ministry to embrace this prayer. Then to adopt this prayer, to pray this prayer is to acknowledge the things that matter to Jesus. Since he's the one who has perfected our faith, the author of Hebrews tells us, the only one to whom our eyes must be set, this prayer is the most important. Oh, okay, you missed that opportunity, but uh, just kidding. But basing our prayer on basing our prayer life, then in terms of Jesus's prayer life, is a crucial, a vital way to demonstrate our following of him. So let's dig into the last line. And just before we do, would you please bow your heads with me and, and let us pray and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we desire now to open your word and to hear from you. And so we need your spirit to work. Would you please give us ears to hear what your spirit would have us to hear this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> when I was in my late teens, early 20s, author Frank Preddy, you remember Frank Preddy? Uh, did you know, actually, actually, did you know he was born in Lethbridge, Alberta? Hmm. Anyway, he wrote a couple of books that fascinated me called the Darkness Series. Maybe you remember them. The individual books were entitled This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. If you're not familiar with the storyline, these books follow a reporter and a pastor, Hank Bush, in the fictional town of Ashton as the veil between the material realm and the spiritual realm is partially drawn, revealing a great battle between angels and demons. What fascinated me was how Peretti portrayed these beings, the might and the power of these beings, and the relative helplessness of the human protagonists. Though helpless against the power of the demons who were intent on destroying the testimony of Christ in the world, I was attracted to the character and the approach of the pastor in these stories. He was loving, prayerful, and though frightened, he did not shy away from, the con from confronting the evil forces. And he maintained a strong faith in the sovereign might of God that in the end, he alone would be victorious. Similarly, though less dramatic, C.S. Lewis's book called The Screwtape Letters equally enthralled me with its fictional correspondence between a junior demon and his teacher, or the senior one. The junior one uh, named Wormwood and this, his advisor called Screwtape. And in this book, Screwtape attempts to teach Wormwood how to succeed at drawing the patient, us, away from the enemy, God. What, what was so helpful and so interesting about this story is the way that Lewis could reverse my point of view to consider just how my, I might be tempted away from following Christ. In both cases, neither of these books, this is probably not news to anyone, neither of these books are true in terms of the actual details, right? There was, you know, the darkness series wasn't based on true events. Uh, uh, the screw tape letters wasn't an, an actual um, uh, uh, documentation of, of, a, of an interview that took place. 
However, both of these are deeply grounded in the Christian worldview and provide a kind of glimpse into what we just heard, into what Isla just read, is that that we battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. This is, the, this is the context of this final line of Jesus' teaching prayer. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. There, this is what we experience. This is what we confront. This is what we face in this line of the prayer. Jesus offers no explanation, no justification, doesn't give any excuses. There's just a request, or actually two requests. Lead us not to temptation and deliver us from evil. So today we conclude our series on the prayer that embraces the world by being reminded that in the biblical worldview, the world, right? The prayer that embraces the world, the world includes both that which is seen and what our author Michael Heiser calls the unseen realm. Not many of us have tangible experience with what is unseen, but I know some, in, some here have. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12 lists the discernment of spirits among possible spiritual gifts. The special spiritual ability empow- empowered by the spirit to sense spiritual activity and help and encourage the church, the body of Christ, to respond accordingly. However, it's not necessary to see or hear or feel a presence Um, to experience the effects of the spiritual forces that seek to destroy what God loves. So again, once again, there are two parts to the line of this prayer. Lead us not to temptation, deliver us from evil. At first glance, the way that they're often translated can give off the impression that they're related directly to the process of individual sin. Right? In other words, we might be tempted pardon the pun, to assume that this part of the prayer is meant to help us avoid individual sin. That is, until we actually follow through with that line of reasoning. So to see this, we might pray something like, God, please stop leading me to look at porn, but rescue me from that evil instead. Right. As if God's up in heaven and uh, forgets what he's doing, needs to be reminded. Oh yeah, I must help my followers avoid sin, right? It's not just ridiculous. It's actually unbiblical to think that. James explains this, right? He writes in the first chapter, let no one say when he's tempted, you know this passage, right? I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. We're solely at fault when it comes to giving in to our sinful tendencies. We fall because there's something there in that temptation that we want, something that attracts us. Sure, it it might be on the spur of the moment. Maybe we suffer from a momentary lack of judgment or during a time of weakness, but that does not change the fact that we are responsible for following through with the temptation into sin. The previous line, actually, of the Lord's prayer addresses our need for forgiveness. What do we do when that happens? God's made provision for that. We come to him, acknowledge our sin and receive his forgiveness. So then what does lead us into temptation refer to if it doesn't refer to particular temptations? 
I want to quickly run through some of the details related to this idea of temptation and, and, and try to suggest that there are two kinds of temptations, or in fact, a better word would be something like testing or trial or tribulation, something along those lines that I think Jesus had, it, had in mind. Uh, so I, I want to provide those two. The, 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 the first one is the main one, and then I'm just going to touch on the other one. Uh, and then we'll get into the second part of the prayer. Right. First, a couple of grammar details here. Uh, again, the, the word is, you know, has a bit of a broad range. It could mean temptation. It is a per- perfectly, you know, proper uh, English inter- uh, uh, translation, but probably, as I suggest, refers more to testing, trial, persecution, right? Because temptation, James already rules out the, that, uh, that uh, as, a, as the uh, precise definition. Keep in mind, this, again, this is written in the subjective mood. We've already talked about what the imperative mood is, right? When somebody's passionate about something, somebody puts an exclamation mark, that's the imperative mood. When somebody's suggesting a possibility, something that is potentially hypothetical, not, not real yet, might be, but not yet, they use the subjunctive mood. And we often use the, uh, the English word may. So it may be the case that something will happen. It might be the case that's, that another thing will happen. This is the mood of of this part. And lead us not to temptation. May you not lead us into temptation. Might be a fuller translation. The other thing to note in terms of grammar is there's no article. This is general temptation or trial or challenges. Other translations use a time of persecution. Lead us not into a time of persecution. This is a general sense. So the first sense of this testing that I think applies to us here today uh, is introduced actually by John in a a comment that Jesus made from that's recorded for us in John 16, where he says this in the world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. You will have testing. You will have challenges. Jesus makes this clear to his disciples. He also tells them in the same context that the world will hate them. Hate. Now, I don't know about you, but these kinds of statements from Jesus make me feel a bit uncomfortable. I prefer not to have trouble if I can avoid it. And I prefer people to love me. Well, I, I mean, at least like me. But hate Jesus clarifies somewhat for his disciples and explains that the hatred that the world is going to express is not technically specifically addressed to you and me specifically as individuals, but it's actually the result of the fact that it's Jesus that they hate, the messenger of God, that God's plan, that God's call on their life, that God's invitation to stop sinning, stop living that way and to trust him. That's what they hate. But the result is still the same. Hate and tribulation. The very nature and importantly, the act of following Christ. Hear this. The very nature and act of following Christ produces a friction with the world. The standards Christ sets the direction he goes and the priorities he establishes run against the world. This is unavoidable. 
So what happens now? Is this just meant to be merely a word to the wise? Jesus said, just, you know, uh, be careful out there. Uh, you're going to run into some trouble. It is that, right? It's, there's a warning there, an expression of reality. Don't be surprised by this. But there's more, right? He provides a bit more. So look at James again and what he suggests to support this, those, these times of challenges that we face, this general sense of testing that we encounter. My brothers and sisters, James writes, you know this again, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Here, James helps us to see the correct response for the follower of Christ. Consider it nothing but joy. James encourages us to decide to accept these times of testing with joy. Keep in mind though, I'll talk about this in a moment, keep in mind the, the testing here is specifically the result of following Christ, okay? Hang on to that. I'll get back to that in a second. Because let me be frank. Don't confuse this general testing, Jesus leading us or God's spirit leading us into a time of testing with anything but following Christ, because sometimes I fear we confuse the response, right? The anger or the frustration that people, some of maybe it's our coworkers, maybe it's our community members. Sometimes we confuse their response to just a general lack of grace sometimes that we extend to other people. Or maybe it's a narrow mindedness. Or maybe it's a judgmentalism. Or our fear. As if we, as if these are the things that we ought to consider the general testing that comes from following Jesus. All of us, no matter who we are, no matter how long we've been following Jesus, all of us, scripture in, in, in encourages us, must grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to be careful that we don't confuse just being a, a, a miserable person with, oh, look at how the world is attacking us. Let us make sure that because we were promised that we will have this, these encounters, that it's because we are graciously and gracefully and lovingly and kindly following Jesus and let, and let him uh, express the context for this. Then we will understand the natural friction of being a Christian in this world. Okay, so we have times of testing and trials, Jesus promises us, because of following Jesus. We're to accept those times with joy, the recognition that God can use these times in our life to deepen, strengthen, and confirm our faith. But one more passage will be helpful at this point. And here we turn to Paul's words to the Corinthian church. When he writes this, no testing, no times of trial, no challenges has come upon you, overtaken you. That's not common to everyone. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond your strength, but with the testing will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. God's gracious power implicit in the nature of his indwelling spirit of God is able to sustain us through our times of testing. Testing incidentally can be the result of friction with the world in terms of humanity, but also in terms of physicality. 
Remember, Paul writes to the Roman believers, all creation groans. There's a breaking. There's a, it's not working quite right aspect to our physicality. And some of us in our midst are, are uh, suffering because of that. So if this general sense of testing is to be expected, and if we are to receive them joyfully, and if God's gracious provision includes the ability to endure, then you might ask, why ask not to be led into them? Well, here we we turn to uh, biblical scholar Don Carson to explain this. The New Testament tells us that this age will be characterized by wars and rumors of wars but does not find it incongruous to urge us to pray for those in authority so that we might live peacefully and quietly. While Jesus told his disciples to rejoice when persecuted, he nevertheless exhorted them to flee from it and even to pray that their flight should not be too severe. So this part of Jesus's teaching prayer is also meant to to help us acknowledge the intuition that we would rather not suffer. It gives us permission to say when we're sick or when we're being challenged, when when we're um, experiencing these kinds of times of testing to ask like Jesus did in Gethsemane, Father, if it's your will, please take this away from me. This part of Jesus's teaching prayer allows us to come not only alongside Jesus in Gethsemane, but also like Habakkuk. For this part of the prayer gives us permission to stand before God and ask like Habakkuk did, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will do nothing? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look in terrible or and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. This part of Jesus's teaching prayer brings us into the garden, comes or helps us to come alongside Habakkuk and Paul and, and say, God, take this away. I'm tired of looking at injustice. This is not right. Not because I, it's uncomfortable for me, but because I know by the, the characteristic of your kingdom through the work of your son, that this is not what you intend. So take it away. Heal me, Father. Now, I know these things are are hard to say, so I don't say them lightly. This part of Jesus' teaching prayer uh, teaches us not to be ashamed to ask God to remove suffering, pain, and injustice. Jesus' prayer reflects this. Sometimes God puts his people to the test. But like Jesus, we say, not my will, but yours be done. But there's more at play here than yes or no, on or off, right? Suffering or ease. I'll never forget being part of an impromptu prayer gathering for a pastor on the staff of another church where I served. He was physically suffering. Everybody could see that. And a few of us just, you know, loved him and longed to to kind of pray for him and see him healed of this. And so we gathered around him and asked, could we pray for him? But even in the midst of his suffering, this wise and brother in the Lord still told us that stop. Okay, before you start, yes, you can pray for me. But before you start, I want this to be more than just healing. If you're going to pray for me, think bigger about God's will. Think bigger about God's kingdom. Think bigger about God's purposes for this. 
So we prayed for a strength to endure. We prayed that God would be glorified through his suffering. We prayed that his faith would be strengthened amid the pain. Yes, we also prayed that our dear brother would be healed. Not any, none of us want to see a friend or family suffer. But it takes courage and faith in Christ to face suffering like that. But it is possible. But remember, this prayer permits us to ask God to keep us from suffering. Some in our midst, as you know, are suffering for various reasons. Some who are being asked to endure various challenges for some reason, known only to God. However, even though they are the ones who must decide to endure, they do not have to do it alone. Even in Gethsemane, Jesus gathered people around him for support. Gathered people around him for a time of prayer at the beginning of his most significant suffering. And they missed that opportunity. But what if as a church community, each of us were to make a habit of coming around those we know are suffering in body, in mind, in spirit, in whatever way. What if we uh, regularly came around people uh, that we know are suffering to support them, staying awake with them to help them in the depths of their suffering? Is there someone that comes to mind right now? Someone in your life? After the service, there's going to be prayer partners available uh, after the service today. And if that's you, if you are in that position, please don't hesitate to ask for prayer support. But what if it, in addition to the prayer partners, there were a bunch of impromptu prayer meetings after the service? What if you who are suffering turned to one you trusted and asked, can you watch and pray with me? Or if you know, if you went to that person and said, I know you're suffering. Can I pray for you? As a normal part of following Christ, it is possible to experience friction with the world and to be led into this actively by God's spirit. We are to receive this with joy and God's indwelling spirit can sustain us. This is the most common sense of the concept in, in the Bible, but there's another aspect I just want to touch on really quickly. And that is the testing at the fulfillment of time, because it's important that we at least note it, not just for theological or biblical grounds, but also for, to keep in mind that no matter how long you've suffered, those of you, those of you who are suffering in our midst, or, or when you encounter that suffering, that there will come an end to that suffering. There will come a time when God sets everything aright whether it's pain, physical pain, or justice, there will come a time that there is a promise that God will come again and set his kingdom. Just really briefly, later on in Matthew, Matthew 24, verse 21, Jesus says this, for at that time, there will be great suffering. We often refer to this as the tri great tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So there will come a time that represents the end. Just at the time, just before God's kingdom finally is revealed completely. When the enemy, the one who would seek to destroy us, has the last gasped attempt to destroy that which God loves. 
So let's turn back to Tom Wright again for the summary of this line of the prayer. First, it means let us escape. So uh, referring to the first line, right? Lead us not to temptation. Here, Professor Wright says, first, it means let us escape the great tribulation, the great testing that is coming upon all the world. Finally, it means do not let us be led into temptation that we will be unable to bear. And finally, another finally, it means enable us. Even, even authors are guilty of this as well. Finally, it means enable us to pass safely through the testing of our faith. Because you see, there's one more line, and I'm just going to touch on this really briefly. Sorry to whoever's operating. Cody, I think, is in the back trying to, <laughs> I'm kind of skipping some parts and moving, changing some things. So sorry about that. We'll get there. Uh, the last bit of the, of, the, of the line, the last bit of the prayer says, um, uh, uh, deliver us from evil. God has given us divine protection from evil. The encounter with evil is a part of life. This is Jesus's phrase, right? And sensitivity to it is a part of the Christian faith. This part is in the imperative mood. Lead us not, may you not lead us into, into, into time of testing. Subjunctive, this is back to the imperative. Deliver us from evil because we know during that time of testing, right, we've learned from past, from the Bible in past, Isla read it for us earlier, that, that we have a, uh, an enemy who prowls around, like Peter says, as a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And we cannot take that lightly. And so Jesus, at the end of the prayer, says at the very last, pray this, deliver us from the evil one, because here there is an article, and here I think he has this in mind, because the entire context fits so nicely with Jesus's testing in the wilderness. The Spirit led him as an illustration of what God does to us sometimes for us, and there he encounters the devil, or Satan, or the tempter, as the text says. And so Jesus in his prayers say, this entity that you're going to encounter at various times along the way in your life is able to destroy. On your own, on my own, we cannot face him. We need God to act in our life. And so Jesus says, turn this, make this a request to God. And God says, only by your power can you save us, can you deliver us ultimately from the evil one, even if it's through periodic uh, testing in our life or ultimately at the very end of our life. Jesus and his grace, uh, God by his um, uh, giving of the Holy Spirit, by his grace through the the action of his son can protect us. And he's done this in two steps. First step is salvation. We read this in Colossians 2. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. When he forgave us our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Now hear this, this is it. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made public examples of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it, on the cross. This was his declaration of triumph. This is one of the great ways that the New Testament gives us to describe the action of Jesus, the work of Jesus. He is victorious. 
over sin, over death. He's canceled. He made a way for us to experience this, but it requires you and I coming before him and saying, God, help me. I am sorry. I can't do this on my own. And if you're here today or listening to this right now, and you've never made that decision, this is a crucial, vital, important part. You you and I have to come to terms with this ourselves. It's just not because you are attending church or you're watching church online or anything like this. This is the decision. You need to hear this coming from God himself saying, saying you are a sinner, but I can help you with that. Follow me, submit to me, give me your life. Let me help you with this because I'm not only able to take you through life. I could take you through death. And so we need to submit, but there's another step. And that is God's given us divine protection. I won't, I'll just run through this here. Um, incidentally, uh, when I was, uh, did my internship here at Central back in, I think the summer of 92 or 93, I can't remember exactly. I preached a whole sermon on this, uh, on Ephesians chapter six. I'll read for that, read that for us just shortly. Uh, and, and, and why I bring that to your attention is because the thing that stood out to me about that, about my own message, uh, is not just that I spoke for an hour. Some of you maybe were there. It's, it's kind of embarrassing, but, but I spoke for a long time, even longer than this morning. Uh, and, but, but what I did was I set up a mannequin and, uh, and I had a friend worked it out with a friend who's who, uh, every time I would get to a new, um, piece of armor that God's given us. And I rented a, like a Roman costume. And so he would come up with the next piece and he would put it on right on the mannequin. So here, here's the point. By the end, the whole mannequin was covered. Everything was protected, right? It was protected as he went forward or she went forward to kind of broaden the whole illustration right? We are protected. God's given us everything we need for, for dealing with these, for encountering these, no matter how frightful, no matter how fearful, no matter how troubling they are, we are covered as we submit to him, as we trust him. So let me try to bring all of this together. And this, this time I'm going to invite our music team to come up and just get ready for our final song together. So to me, this line of Jesus' teaching prayer is best summarized this way. Father, please don't let us face a trial. But if you do, help us resist the evil one. Father, please don't let us face trial. It's okay to ask God to remove that. We don't have to face everything with a stiff upper lip. We can say, God, this hurts. Please take this away from me. Father, please don't let us face trial. But if you do, if you decide by your grace, help us resist the evil one so that in the end we are victorious like Christ. So let me offer just two suggestions how to respond to this whole series. For some of us, maybe this is the first introduction you've had to the Lord's Prayer. So let me suggest this. Maybe adopt the general structure. Add this to your prayer life. First three were about God and uh, worshiping God, acknowledging God, his kingdom, his rule, right? His glory. And what's the other one? I've forgotten off the top of my head. Why can't I think of it? What are the three? Oh yeah, holy is your name. 
Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. That's the one I forgot. Let your will be done. Oh, I, I, anyway, man. All right. I think I'm, I'm getting close to the end here. <laughs> adopt the general structure. This is my point here at the end. Maybe this is new. So adopt the structure. First bit, say, you know, in your prayer life, recognize those things that Jesus recognized. Let the psalmist help us to declare God's praises, right? To acknowledge his presence, to acknowledge his glory, to acknowledge his kingdom, to acknowledge his will. And then the second bit, we ask for his help in our, in our times of need, right? Providing the things that we need to, in order to sustain us, helping us to forgive people, help us to confront and deliver us from the evil one. But maybe this is not new. So here's something for you. Make each of the lines, and I know Barton mentioned this at the very beginning, make each of these lines a habitual part of your prayer life. As you come to terms with it, don't just say, um, hallowed be thy name, unless, uh, until you grasp it a little bit. Because we need to know what it means to set God's name apart, to what it means to say that only he alone has the glory. What does it mean when we say that? Come to terms with this, learn, study. There's plenty of other uh, um, ways we can kind of grow in understanding, but makes each line a habitual prayer as you come to terms with each. And then finally, just before I pray, I want to thank you who pray for our church. It probably sometimes doesn't feel like very much, especially if you're at home and you can't join us on a regular basis. It, it matters in fact, I wouldn't be surprised, this is just my hunch, that when we get to the end and we're before Christ and God says, you know what, I was happy, I was pleased with Central Baptist Church, and, and here's why, because there were people who were praying for our ministry. So thank you for praying. And what can I encourage other people to continue to pray for us, to make it a, a habit of praying, not just for us, excuse me, but for each other. Join us in our pre-service prayer from, nine to, to, or from 10 to 10, 15, and there's other opportunities. But thank you for those who pray regularly. Now let us pray. Our Father, we do come before you. You are our Father. There's so much we are so grateful for. And we are challenged by your word, challenged by your action in our life, but we are grateful for your provision. Come beside those who are suffering today. Heart, mind, soul. Be gracious to them. Take their suffering away. Heal them. Father, help us to be a church that prays like Jesus did. In his name we pray, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.